0: What are the prerequisites? What are the qualities that make up the kind of person that God uses? And you know, as I was standing, sitting up here this morning, looking out across this congregation, I was thinking about what I was going to say. And I I started to say something like, all of us want to be used of God. All of us have a desire to be used of God. And did you know the Lord just checked me on that? And as I looked out across this congregation, I really had never thought of this, but there are a tremendous amount of people that don't have a desire to be used to God. And that was just a revelation to me this morning as I was looking at you. God was, I don't know that it, uh, I don't know that God pointed out individuals, but God just showed me that there's a large number of people in here that never have had a desire to be used of God. They don't see themselves being used of God. They see themselves simply doing their own thing, going through their life, asking God to bless them, to prosper them, so that they can have enough money to do their thing, to carry on their life and ask God's blessing on what they're doing, and they never have really reached a place where they desire to be used of God. And uh, all I can say to something like that is that, man, if that's so, which I'm sure it is because I know God spoke that to me, it's hard for me to relate to somebody thinking that way since I've been a kid. I mean, I can't remember... Oh. A time where I did not desire to be used of God, but I just know that that's not so with everybody. If that's not so with you, I'm telling you, you're missing out on what God's plan for your life is. God created you for a purpose, and that purpose is not to consume everything that God gives you upon yourself. The Bible said, Jesus termed it this way, he said that a man who loses his life will find it. A man who will lay down his life then will be able to take it back again. It's in losing your life. It's in giving your life over to the Lord that you find your life. A person that has never yielded yourself 100% to the Lord. If, you, if your supreme desire in your life isn't to be totally yielded to God and available to God to let God consume you and use you however you desire to be used, then you've missed out on what life is all about. That's the reason that you're finances are poor. That's the reason that your marriages have fallen apart because you've done your own thing. You go out and pick your own mate and then ask God to bless it. That's the reason that your plans have fallen and failed is because you've gone out and you've done what you've wanted to and then ask God to bless it. You know, just a little bit of basics. Common sense in the body of Christ to go a long ways. If people would just yield themselves totally to God make themselves available to God, and then find out what God's will is. Did you know you don't have to ask God to bless something that he tells you to do? When God leads you to do something, you don't have to spend ten seconds praying over it. You know, my prayer life, uh, it would startle a lot of people. It really would. I don't spend hours upon hours upon hours upon hours in prayer. And I'm not saying that that's right or wrong, okay? I'm still growing and developing myself. But did you know I found out a long time ago, I used to spend tremendous amount of time praying and asking God to bless me, to bless what I was doing, to bless my efforts, and it was a struggle. And I found out that a superior way is to simply find out what God wants done. Amen? Get in and do it. And did you know I don't spend any time at all asking God to bless me? Did you know I haven't prayed except in the office this morning and asked God to bless this message or to bless this service this morning? Some people think that's terrible, but you know, I know I'm doing what God called me to do. I know that God's anointed me, and I know that when God calls you and anoints you to do something, that there is a power there, and you don't have to get up and ask God to do something that he's already done. He's already commanded his blessing upon his word. I believe that there's a greater degree of faith in getting in and simply acting and believing God's blessings are present than it is getting in and trying to get God to bless something. All right? And so a lot of us are doing our own thing and asking God to bless it, and because of it we aren't receiving the success, the prosperity that God desired for us. We need to get to a place where we know that our life is totally directed of God. And did you know that there is a place that you can reach like that? Did you know that you can find God's will? And what we'll be talking about this morning is not only how to find God's will, but then come up with God's plan of how to do it. And I'll explain this more, and I believe that this will really sink in on you more Uh, later on this morning. But a lot of people that do have a desire to be used of God and and many people that have even found God's will for their life are still failing in accomplishing God's will because they don't have God's plan for accomplishing it. Now that's very important. Many times when you get your back against the wall and you don't have the faintest idea what it is that God wants you to do, people will get hungry enough, they'll go to seeking God, and they'll seek God out of desperation, fasting, prayer, or whatever, until they find out what God's will for their life is. But then when they get that, they figure, well, God, that's enough, amen, now I know what you want me to do, and then they go out and try and accomplish it in their power, in their way. And did you know, I believe that there's probably been more damage done in the body of Christ by people who recognized a gift or a call on their life, but they did not take time to let God mold them and make them into the person they were supposed to be. They didn't find God's plan for accomplishing it, and so they went out. You know, there's a lot of pastors today that know that God's called them to pastor, and they go out and they, they learn, they experiment on other people. They didn't take time to let God build it in them, and there has been a lot of damage done by people who know a call on their life, but they didn't have God's ability to get it done. They didn't have God's way of getting it done. Y'all follow that? So we're going to be sharing some things today, I believe, that'll help you. Let's look over here in John chapter 2. First thing I want to share with you is that God doesn't just use everybody. And it's not God that is choosing that there's not more people to be used today. God's will is, it says according to the Word of God, His eyes run to and fro throughout the whole earth, seeking to show Himself strong in behalf of those who are perfect in His sight. God wants to use you more than you want to be used. Out of John chapter 15, verse 16, He says, You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. That's John fifteen sixteen. You need to really get that in your heart. You didn't choose God, but God chose you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit. Also in John chapter 15, he says, Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. If you want to glorify God, the thing that glorifies God, the thing that pleases God is for you to be fruitful and productive. So it's God's will to use you. You do not have to pray, God, use me. I used to spend a lot of time praying, oh, God, use me, and I'd say, oh, God, look at the situation out there, and oh, God, think about all the people dying and going to hell, and think about all that needs to be done, and oh, God, just use me, open up a door to use me. I used to spend a lot of time doing that, and finally the Lord spoke this to me, and I mean, it hurt when he spoke this to me, but it was the truth, and it set me free. And he said, the reason I haven't used you is because you aren't usable. And the Lord began to speak to me and say, look, I desire for those people to be led to the Lord more than you do. You know, why do we pray and intercede? People got the wrong idea about a lot of this. Why are we in intercession? A lot of people think we're interceding and praying over Pueblo so that we can get God to move in Pueblo. And they may not say it in this term, but in the back of their mind, they're thinking that God's not going to do a blooming thing. God's not inclined to do anything unless somebody gets in and gets him motivated to do something about Pueblo.
1: <laughs>
0: now, you may not put it in that terminology, but I know that that's what a lot of people think because I hear a lot of prayers. And I hear people praying, Oh, God, run the heavens and come down. That's scripture. But you know, it's Old Testament. God rent the heavens through Jesus, and he came down in the form of flesh. And I guarantee you, you don't have to pray, Oh, God, rent the heavens and come down. Oh, God, send revival. Oh, God, touch Pueblo. Oh, God, save people. You don't have to pray those kind of things. God wants Pueblo saved more than you want Pueblo saved. God wants people's lives changed more than you want people's lives changed. Well, if that's so, then how come something isn't being done? It's because God hadn't got anybody that's usable. Now, he's getting people that are usable, and praise God, this body right here is making an impact. But I tell you, this body still isn't usable in the way that it should. God is still desiring to do much, much, much in our life. It's not that we have to pray and get God in gear. God's not the one that's letting Pueblo go to hell. It's God's people that are letting it go to hell because we're being uh, caught up with the cares of this life, the deceitfulness of riches, and the lust of other things entering in or choking the Word. And it's not a matter of getting enough prayer together and praying until God does something. It's a matter of making ourselves available to God and getting useful. And the moment you get useful, I guarantee you God's going to use you. The moment you get usable, God will use you. If you're having to pray, God, use me, it's because you aren't usable. You need to quit praying, God, use me, and you need to start saying, God, here I am. Make me usable. God, do in my life what it takes to make me a vessel. And I promise you, if you'll make yourself available to God, God will mold you into somebody and God will use you. God wants to use you more than you want to be used. In John, the second chapter, this is right at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. This is the very first time that he ever showed himself at the feast of the Passover in Jerusalem. And in verse 23, it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover and the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and needed not that any should testify of men for he knew what was in men. Now if you'd stop and think about this, this was the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Jesus stated purpose. He said that he came so that all men could be brought unto the Father, so that he could preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. Jesus came to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. He had a message to get out. Jesus stated that he was trying to reach people, very similar to what we're doing today. I guarantee you there's nothing wrong with small churches as long as they don't stay small, but God didn't call people to have small churches and small works. Now, big is not better, but at the same time, small is not better. We've got a message and we need to be able to communicate it. We need to be reaching people. This place needs to be packed out. We need to have a place ten times this big, amen, where the gospel's going forth. We've got a message that we're trying to, uh, trying to Proclaim to people. Jesus had a message, and Jesus wanted to expose that message to as many people as he possibly could. When he was at this feast day, he did many miracles. He cast devils out of people. He saw great things happen. And as a result, multitudes is what it says. Many people believed on him when they saw the miracles which he did. Now that looks good, doesn't it? If we had a message, which we do, to proclaim to Pueblo, If we went down, if we had Bernie and Tim, and they were downtown, and they held a crusade down here, and all of a sudden, man, they started seeing the blind eyes open, the deaf ears open, the lame walk, and people got excited, and and the crowds grew to 10,000 people, and we had 10,000 people there, and they were just shouting out and proclaiming that, oh, we believe Jesus is the Christ. We believe Jesus is the King. We want to reach Pueblo. You know what most of us would do? Man, we'd get them the materials. We'd get everybody a packet. We'd sign them up. We'd uh, have them go knocking door to door and say, Man, let's take this town. Doesn't that sound good? Look what Jesus did. All of these people believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did, but Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men. Here was Jesus wanting to proclaim himself, wanting to proclaim his message, the gospel to the poor, and all of these people came right at his feet, ready to do whatever he wanted. I mean hungry. We're ready to proclaim you as Messiah, to announce you as king to the entire nation. He had thousands of people that he could have used to blitz that nation. And Jesus walked off and left them, would not commit himself unto them, would not commit his ministry unto them, would not use them to proclaim his message. Why? Because he knew what was in man. The point that I'm saying is, Jesus approaches things a little bit different than most of us do. Jesus is more concerned about the quality of ministry than he is the quantity of ministry. Jesus is more concerned that it be done in a proper way. God is not going to use people that are not usable. And we see right here that Jesus, these people, in our way of thinking, would have been the key to him achieving his purpose. But you know, Jesus was a man of principle. Boy, I like that. Jesus had some standards, standards and he was not going to violate his standards to get to the end. The end result does not justify the means that you use to get there. You know, in my ministry, I'm sure... Tim, Bernie, any of the ministers here could verify this, that, man, you have such a desire within you to reach people to share the gospel that there are always shortcuts presented to you. There's always ways of compromising your principles, and they may not be things that are totally wrong, but just compromises to things that you've said, I'm never going to do it this way. You've got a standard, and there's always opportunities to compromise. And and the end result would be so noble that it's easy to justify those kind of compromises. But did you know you can't do that? I saw a film, I'm sure some of you saw it, Chariots of Fire. And I tell you, that show blessed me. And I didn't agree with this guy that chose not to run on, on Sunday in the Olympics because, you know, I don't believe that Sunday is the Sabbath in the first place. I believe that technically, doctrinally speaking, what his stand was incorrect. But to him... He believed that was God's standard. And he refused to run on Sunday because of his faith in the Lord. And uh, anyway, they tried to pressure him. He wouldn't do it. And finally, they worked out a compromise, and he he got it done. But uh, one one of those statements in there, boy, just has really gone into my heart, and this guy was talking to some of the people who were pressuring him to compromise his convictions with God and go ahead and run on Sunday. And this one man said, you tried to separate this man from his values or from his principles and says, those values and principles are what made him the runner that he is. If you'd have separated him from those, you wouldn't have had a runner. You wouldn't have had a champion if you separate him from those principles and from those values. And boy, that really has gone into my heart that, you know, that our value system, our principles, our standards are what make us what we are. And I guarantee you, just accomplishing some end result and doing whatever you have to do to get there, that, that's not it. That's not the right way to do it. I guarantee you, whether I'm right or wrong, I've got some commitments, some things that I've made to the Lord. And if I violate those things, I'm destroying myself. I'm destroying any quality in me that is usable by God. And I've got to adhere to what God's spoken to me. I've got to hold on to those principles, onto those values. You all see that? God has values. God has standards for using people, and God's not going to violate them. Even though there's a world dying and going to hell, God is not going to violate his usage of people. He's not going to commit himself to just everybody. There's certain people that he will not commit himself to because he knows what's in man, and he needs not, it says, that any man should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. That means that he doesn't want us to minister out of our ability. He wants the ability to be supernatural ability. He doesn't want us to do it out of our power and out of our ability. And here's probably one of the biggest reasons that most people aren't being used of God is because they have never really yielded themselves to where it's not them living, but it's Christ living through them. Most people are doing everything that they're doing out of their ability and asking God's blessings on it. They're still doing it out of self instead of being dead to self and allowing God to live through them, and God's not going to use that kind of person. God wants a person who will allow him to flow through them. You know, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that God chose the foolish things of the world to confound the things which are wise and base things of the world to bring to naught things that are and and all of this other. It says that he chose the base, the foolish things of the world. Now, the reason he did that is not because God's got anything against somebody that's got education, that's got good looks, that's got great talent, that has all of these things going for him. God doesn't have anything against you, but God is not going to use that natural ability. Now, I'm not saying that a person with natural ability can't be used. Say, for instance, if you're a great singer, if you've got a great voice, God can use that voice, but only after you give it to him only after you get to where you aren't ministering out of your ability and power. You know, I've, I've known a lot of musicians, and I've heard a lot of other musicians say things such as that when they first got born again, they were singing like, for instance, Kenneth Copeland was singing in nightclubs. And uh, he just thought, well, now that I'm born again, I'm going to start singing for the Lord. But did you know it was years? I think some something like six or seven years before the Lord ever allowed Kenneth Copeland to ever sing a gospel song in front of people. And he just, it was hurting him inside because that was a way of expressing himself, it was a way of praising God, and he really desired to worship God with his voice, and God wouldn't allow him to do it. And the reason was is because he had done all of it out of his ability. He had all—he had done all of it for self-glory, for self-gratification. And it takes a while to get that self out of you. It takes a while to shift gears. It takes a while to get to where you're doing it really for the glory of God and not being lifted up with pride by the compliments and things that come your way. And so it took a number of years for God to bring Kenneth Copeland to a place to where he could sing and glorify God with his voice instead of glorifying Kenneth Copeland. And finally, when he reached that place, the Lord allowed him to start singing. I've seen the same thing with people who play guitars, with people that were musicians, and on and on. It's not that God will not use those things it's that God is not gonna anoint your efforts. He wants it to be Him living through you. And that's the reason God chooses Hicks from Texas, amen. <laughs> to minister. God hadn't got things against people that aren't Hicks, but it's that it's the fact that a Hick knows that he hadn't got a chance and he has to trust God totally. Whenever somebody comes up and compliments me and says, Brother, that was powerful, that changed my life. There's no way I can take that and say, Boy, Andy, you're really good. Because I know that when I started in the ministry, I couldn't look a person in the face and talk to him. I was such an introvert. The first time I ever ministered, I had three sermons memorized for a three-day revival meeting, and I preached all three of them in five minutes the first night. <laughs> I was paranoid. I just could not handle it. And I know that I know that I know that what God's given me is a gift and I know it's not me. Amen? You know, when I was in Mobile, Alabama about two and a half years ago, I I'd, I'd just started running and uh, I wasn't using wisdom on it. I'd been, uh, I had a, I was trying to deal with my weight problem. And so for a year, I hadn't eaten any sweets. We didn't eat any sugar. We didn't eat any of those kind of things. We are very low-carbohydrate diet. And then I added to that running, and I didn't realize that when you were running an average of six miles a day, you had to have some of that carbohydrates or junk food, whatever you want to call it, because, I mean, you're burning up a lot of energy. And I didn't realize this. And so I came to this church. I had fasted for two days before I got there. I hadn't been eating any of these things. I got up and run six miles, and and that morning... I mean, I was so out of it. I, I had to stand like this and lean on the pulpit and hold on to it, and I couldn't even see the people out there. My head was swimming, and I couldn't have told you what I ministered on. I couldn't have even told you the topic I was talking about. But I was up there just rattling off Scripture. I spoke for nearly two hours. And the people came up and said, Man, that is the most anointed ministry that you've ever had. That is the best. And, you know, I remember standing there, and while I was ministering, I can't explain this, but while I was ministering, I was just in a daze. I couldn't have seen Bernie. I couldn't have seen the front row. And while I was ministering, I could just hear all this stuff flowing out on me. And I remember kind of just in my mind's eye stepping over to the side and looking at myself, saying, How do you do this? (laughs) What are you doing? I mean... It just wasn't me. It literally wasn't me. I I was possessed. (laughs) I was possessed by God. And it's a gift. And it's not something that I operate. And I know that. And because of it, did you know, that's the reason that God picks Hicks. (laughs) Because I know that it's not anything I'm doing. I haven't got any natural ability or natural talent. And that's the reason God chooses foolish things of the world. That's the reason that whether you've got it all together or not, you have to count all that you've got as dung so that you can become usable until you recognize that God doesn't need your ability. God used an old donkey one time. Amen. It, it, hadn't, it wasn't because it had been to seminary.
1: <laughs>
0: until you get to where you lay your life down and say, God, all of my talents, all of my abilities, everything that I've got, it's just like dung and all I do is make myself available. Until you reach that place, you aren't usable. Until you recognize that it's not going to be you and your talents and your abilities that God anoints, but rather you're just a container for God, until you reach that place, you'll never even start to be used by God. And that's why a lot of people are frustrated today. They've got the desire to go out and reach people, but they've never reached a place to where they've really yielded themselves as a living sacrifice to God. Counted everything that they have as dung and just say, God, here I am. You fill me. God, you control me. God, you do it. There's that's hard to do because of pride. Because we've been in control. Because we are the ones that have been calling the shots to yield control. Submission. You know, submission is nearly a dirty word in the body of Christ. A few years ago, there was a lot of abuse of submission, and we saw it preached to such a degree that you submit to people even if they tell you to sin, and of course that's wrong. But regardless of the abuses, there is a truth about submission. And very, 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 very few Christians have ever learned submission. They don't submit to anybody. They're free spirits. They're independents. They don't go to church. They won't submit to any church because no church is good enough for them. And people have not learned to just plug in some place and to submit. Because you know, until you learn submission, you'll never be used of God. Because the thing that hinders submission is pride, self-centeredness, the fact that you're calling the shots, the fact that you will not yield yourself under the control of anybody else. If you can't yield yourself to the control of a man, you can't yield yourself to the control of God. And I'm not talking that you yield yourself to the control of a person to the degree that they become your God or a pope, a mediator between you and God, but I'm talking about the scriptural method where we yield ourselves one to another, submitting ourselves one to another in the fear of God, where we submit ourselves under the leadership, the eldership that God placed into the church, even if you disagree with them, that you love that person and you never criticize, but you always do things to build them up, to minister to them. If you can't learn those lessons... You'll never be used. Until you can learn to submit in some of those areas, you won't be able to submit when God opens up a door for you and wants to use you in a mighty way. Let's look at some things over here in Exodus about Moses. I tell you, some of these things that I'm sharing with you are things that God's been sharing with me for a couple of years. And the more and more I'm around, the more and more I see that really this is a real pivotal point in God, in the person that God uses. In Exodus chapter 2, we read about Moses, and I'm not going to take time to say all of this because you ought to be familiar with the story of Moses. But in Exodus chapter 2, in verse 11, it says, It came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out unto his brethren and looked on their burdens, and he spied an Egyptian smiting an Hebrew, one of his brethren, and he looked this way and that way, and when he saw there was no man, he slew the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the second day, behold, two men of the Hebrews strove together, and he said to him that did the wrong, Wherefore smitest thou thy fellow? And he said, Who made thee a ruler and a judge over us? Intendest thou to kill me as thou killest the Egyptian? And Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. Now when Pharaoh heard this thing, he sought to slay Moses, but Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now, before we go into this, you've got to renew your mind, first of all. How many of you have ever seen the show The Ten Commandments? You've got to renew your mind. That's a great show. I watch it. I'm not against The Ten Commandments. I'd go watch it again if it was on, but it's not scriptural in a lot of ways. And one of the things that is not scriptural is that they present Moses as simply a good old boy, who saw the the Hebrews being oppressed. He didn't even recognize he was a Jew himself, and he just went out and was fighting for justice and for, for good moral standards. But that's not the truth. That's not at all what the Scripture reveals. Let's look over here in Acts chapter 7, where Stephen was speaking about Moses, and he was speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. He was giving a defense for himself, and the criticism was that he was preaching against Moses and the prophets. And so he begins to recount Jewish history. and he says a lot of things about Moses here under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, and this is the true mind of God about what was going on. In uh, verse 19, Acts chapter 7, verse 19, it says, "The same dealt sub- subtly with our kindred and evil entreated our fathers so that they cast out their young children to the end they might not live." "...in which time Moses was born and was exceeding fair, and nourished up in his father's house three months. And when he was cast out, Pharaoh's daughter took him up and nourished him for her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and was mighty in words and in deeds." Now this is just a little extra, but this is is a comparative value of the Scripture, all right? This is the way you really get revelation knowledge of the Scripture, is by comparing Scripture with Scripture. If you read the account in Exodus chapter 2, 3, and 4, especially chapter 3 and 4, where God appeared unto Moses and said, Moses, I'm going to send you down to deliver the children of Israel. Moses said, God, I'm not eloquent of speech, not before you talked to me, nor since you've talked to me. He says, I can't talk. Now, if you read that over there in Exodus chapter 4, you would think that what Moses was saying was the truth. But this is the true mind of God. This is a commentary on it. And the scripture here says that Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and in deeds. So as you compare scripture with scripture, you find out that Moses was lying to God. He was saying, God, I don't have the ability to do this. He, in the natural, had the ability. And he lied about it, just like a lot of us. Amen. Verse 23, and when he was full 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. It says it came into his heart to visit his brethren. He knew that the Hebrews were his brethren. He knew that he was a Jew. And it came into his heart means that God placed this in his heart. Verse 24, seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him and avenged him that was oppressed and smote the Egyptian... For he supposed, now this is what he was thinking when he killed this Egyptian. He supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them, but they understood not. You know what this says? This says to us that Moses knew God's will for his life. Moses knew God had called him to bring deliverance to the children of Israel. And when Moses went out and killed this Egyptian, he didn't do it just because he saw somebody in a fight and he tried to help one of them. Moses went out and did that trying to bring God's will to pass. He did that trying to accomplish the ministry that God had given him. And did you know he fell flat of his face? Boy, that's encouraging. That's encouraging. Moses was a mighty man of God, and yet Moses, in an attempt to accomplish God's will on his life, committed murder and thought it was justified. Now, I'm reading between the lines, but you know, I believe that Moses' thinking probably was. Moses knew he was a uh, Jew, first of all. These scriptures reveal that to us. He knew that his brethren were being oppressed. He knew that God had promised them deliverance and he knew that God was going to use him. He knew it was God's will to use him to bring deliverance to the Jews. And I'm sure that Moses probably was rationalizing and thinking, you know, why else was I a Jew and yet I was raised in Pharaoh's house? I'm second or third in command over the entire nation. I've got power. I've got clout. I've got all of the approval of the Egyptians. Surely God has put me in this position. He's going to use this position that he's given me to bring deliverance to the Jews. He's going to use the military might, the power, that, the authority that I have behind me to bring deliverance to the Jews. I'm sure that's what he was thinking. would not that what you'd think? How come things happened to me the way they did? How come I'm in Pharaoh's household? How come I'm second or third in command? I mean, that's just normal. That's rational thinking. That made good sense. But you know, the only thing wrong with it was that wasn't God's plan. He knew God's will, but he thought God was going to use natural things, natural ability, natural power and position to bring it to pass. You know, the body of Christ is still doing the same thing. I've already alluded to this, but, you know, you see somebody who's a great singer, somebody who's a great communicator, a great talker. They have all of this natural ability. They're using it in the world or whatever. People are just crowding to them. They've got a natural charisma, and I've heard it said thousands of times. Oh, man, we need to pray. That person, if they get born again, are going to become a tremendous powerhouse for God. Boy, God can use them. He can use their ability. He can use their position to really communicate the gospel. See, we're missing the mind of God on that. God's not going to... I don't care if that person is the greatest vocalist that ever lived, God's not going to use their great natural talent. That's not what he's going to use. It's the anointing that breaks the yoke, not their natural talent, not their natural ability. If they're the most famous personality that ever lived, God's not going to use their clout and their position. Now, we can see some people today that are being used like that, that have been very popular, very famous. They get born again, converted, and they make a splash. But did you know that I can also show you many of those people. I heard one recently on the 700 Club that after he got born again, he came out very vocal. He spoke for the Lord, and did you know it liked to have destroyed him spiritually. Within a year and a half, he was to the point of doubting that there was a God. He was in a rebellion towards God, and he went through a period of four or five years of total rebellion. Finally, he's come back now. He's a lot mellower, and God is mightily using him now. But in his own words, he was saying... I was pushed out into ministry because of who I was and because of the recognition that I had. And he said, I wasn't ready. He said, it went to my head. And it's exactly like the scripture talks about in in, uh, Timothy. It says that we are not supposed to put a novice in a position of ministry because he'll be lifted up with pride and he'll fall into the condemnation of the devil. There is a time element in being used of God. There is a growth process that takes place, and I don't care who you are, you don't grow up in six months or a year's period of time. It takes time to be molded and to be used of God, and if this person is the great, greatest vocalist that ever lived, if they got born again today, they shouldn't be in the ministry. They, now I'm not saying that they shouldn't tell what happened to them and, and use it the way they can, but they should not be put in a position where they are thrust and made a a leader in a Christian community for years for their own sake and also for the body of Christ because they're liable to start coming out with some off-the-wall things that will do damage to the body of Christ. That's not exactly the way all of us think, is it? But you know, that's the way God thinks. Moses knew God's will. Moses had great uh, power and authority and natural ability and all of these things going for him, but God wasn't going to do it that way. God doesn't do things the way that we think he's going to do them. And Moses made a tremendous mistake thinking that God was going to use just his natural position and authority. Let's look at one other thing over here. Let's turn back to Genesis chapter 15. This is where God appeared unto to Abraham and made covenant with Abraham. And part of this covenant, we'll only read part of it, in verse 13, Genesis 15, 13, says, And he said to Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And God's prophesying to Abram. And he said that your descendants are going to go down into this nation, which we now know was Egypt, and they're going to be afflicted for 400 years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterward shall they come out with great substance. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. Thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. So God prophesied to Abram that his descendants would be in Egypt For 400 years. Let's turn over to Exodus chapter 12. And this is the very day that the children of Israel came out of the land of Egypt under Moses' direction. In Exodus chapter 12 and verse 40, Now the sojourning of the children of Israel who dwelt in Egypt was 430 years. "...and it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, even the selfsame day, it came to pass that all the host of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt." Exactly 430 years from the day that Jacob and all of his children came down into the land of Egypt, 430 years to the day the children of Israel departed out of the land of Egypt under the direction of Moses... We also find, and I'm just going to skip through some of these things, but I believe most of you are aware of it, that Moses spent 40 years in the wilderness. From the time that he killed this Egyptian and he fled from Egypt, he spent 40 years in the wilderness. God appeared to him in the burning bush. He came back and brought deliverance. So if you subtract 40 years from, from 430 years, which is the exact amount of time that they spent in the land of Egypt, that means that Moses killed this Egyptian in the 390th year of their captivity, or of their bondage in Egypt. Everybody follow that? God prophesied to Abraham that they'd be there for 400 years. That means when Moses killed this Egyptian, he was at least 10 years premature trying to bring deliverance to the Jews. He would have violated what God told Abram he would have made God's prophecy to Abram void and of none effect. He was ten years premature with what he was doing. Now, some of you might say, well, now, brother, if he was ten years premature, why did God reveal to him that he was going to use him to bring deliverance? Why would God tell you something ten years before he wanted you to use it? Well, there's probably more than one answer to that, but one of the answers is that it takes us at least ten years to get usable. And God has to many times reveal to you the end result of what he wants you to do to even get you to seeking and, and make yourself presentable to God to be used in that fashion. Did you know that Joseph, who was mightily used of God, Joseph received his two dreams when he was 17 years old. Joseph was 39 years old when he saw those dreams fulfilled. 22 years. And only nine years of that was he enjoying any degree of ministry prosperity at all. So if you subtract that, that means he spent 13 years in total preparation. 13 years in total preparation. Another man, Paul, or Saul, spent 14 years locked up completely separated before he ever ministered. He spent three and a half years of that totally separated from any people at all in the backside of a desert and 14 years before he began to minister the word. everybody wants to be like all these great men of God, but nobody wants to go through Bush University. <laughs> That's where Moses graduated from
1: <laughs> on the
0: back side of the desert. Everybody wants to be like David, but did you know that David was called anointed of God? He had the oil poured over him. The entire nation recognized that David was the one that was anointed to be king, and David spent at least four years running from Saul, living in foreign countries. David even one time had to act like he was totally mad and let the spit drop off of his beard and go around and act like a spastic so that the king wouldn't kill him. And he had the anointing of God on him to be the leader of the Jews. Everybody wants to be like David, but nobody wants to go through what David did to be like David. Everybody wants to be like Moses, but nobody wants to go through Bush University. Everybody wants to be like Joseph, but nobody wants to get thrown in a pit and sold into slavery and accused of adultery and thrown in a dungeon for two and a half years. Everybody wants to be like Paul, but nobody wants to go through three and a half years in the desert and then another uh, 12 years. Shut up, just seeking God. And the reason for that is because of self-will. Because we we just we can rationalize so many things and say, but God, there are people that need it. God, there are people dying and going to hell, and I hadn't got ten years to get ready. God, I hadn't got five years to get ready. God, people are going to go to hell. There's people that I know right now that are going to be going to hell if I don't get with it, and if I'm not mightily anointed, and if you don't use me, there's people going to hell. Did you know Moses could have looked out his window and have said, God, the Jews, if I wait until the 400th year for that prophecy to be fulfilled, can you imagine how many Jews are going to die in slavery in 10 years' time? Can you imagine the terrible anguish that they went through in 10 years' time? He could have justified his feelings and said, God, we had not got 10 years to wait. But did you know what? He'd have been better off waiting 10 years and doing what he did and wind up costing the children of Israel 30 years extra bondage. Think how many died during the 30 years extra bondage. I personally believe that God's will was to bring them out in the 400th year. They spent 30 extra years in in Egypt in bondage because of Moses' disobedience, because of Moses' self-will, because of Moses thinking, God, I can handle it. God, I got all the clout, I got the power, I got the position, I got everything it takes, I'll do it my way. Cost 30 years extra bondage and who knows how many thousands of people's lives, how many thousands of prayers, went unanswered, those people were praying, God, bring us out in my lifetime because of that man's disobedience. You may be able to rationalize things and say, Oh, but man, people have got to be reached now. But I promise you, if you do it in your strength and in your power and don't make yourself available to be yielded unto God, you'll wind up doing more damage to the body of Christ than you do helping it. I think that that's where our body of Christ is right now, that we've got a lot of people that have been called, but they haven't really been made usable yet. And there's a lot of damage today. There's a lot of people that have been hurt through church. There's a lot of people that have been hurt through through ministers. There's a lot of flaky things going on. Well, I'm sure Bernie, with a lot of his experience with some of these old-time ministers, could show you that a lot of those ministers, the reason they aren't alive today and they died young was because they had a call and anointing of God on their life, but they were flaky, and they got taken out of the way. There's been a lot of damage done to the body of Christ by things like that. I believe we're behind schedule. I heard Billy Graham one time say that if he had three and a half years left to minister, the same length of time that Jesus had, that he'd lock himself up for three years and spend six months in ministry. And I really rebelled at that. But you know, I really believe there's some wisdom to that now. He would accomplish more with God's power and anointing on him in six months' time than he would accomplish in his own ability in three and a half years. And you know, so much of what we see today is man's ability. So much of what we see is not God anointed at all. And it just amazes me sometimes, I'm, I'm sure that many of you have seen this too, but I go places and people will just rant and rave about, oh, man, that's powerful. And it was no more God than anything. It was, it was showmanship. I had a friend of mine in Salt Lake City one time that just to prove this point. He got up. And you know, we get our religious traditions, our religious styles, and people get accustomed to religious things. Our spirit-filled word people have their religious traditions. One of these days I'm going to preach on some of those, amen. But I get really tired of spirit-filled religious traditions. I go to these places and people do the same thing, and it's no more God. They learned it from a man and think that it carries the anointing of God on it. But this guy got up, and to make his point, you know, one of the Re- Pentecostal styles is that if you say everything, glory to God, praise God, if everything's got an A on the end of it, then it's anointed, amen?
1: <laughs>
0: and if you're speaking in tongues, it's always got to be the chandelas. You've got to start off, chandela something or another, amen? <laughs> but if you'll just put an A uh, on the end of anything you say, it carries anointing on it. And if you'll shout it real loud, man, it's anointed, So this guy got up and he said, Mary had a little lamb.
1: And
0: the people go, amen,
1: hallelujah.
0: It's fleece, was white as snow. And he went through that poem and people were running the aisles by the time he got through. Quoting, Mary had a little lamb.
1: That's no more
0: God than anything. We're motivated by all of our religious tradition. It's carnal. It's not God-anointed, and it's done the body of Christ a tremendous amount of damage. Many of us wouldn't know the Holy Ghost if he was to come up and hit you in the face.
1: <laughs>
0: we've gotten to where, man, if you shout, if you, if, it depends on how high off the ground you are when you do so. we've got, We've seen the flesh so much that many of us don't recognize. The real thing. It's done damage to the body of Christ. And the sad thing is most ministers can go out and put on a show. They can go out and perform, and most people come up and say, Oh, that was great, and not even recognize that the Holy Ghost wasn't on it. That's a shame. That really is. And it comes because people have ministered out of their own ability. We've seen it so much that we've gotten accustomed to it. We'd be better off to lock ourselves up and let God's power and anointing reside upon us than we would to go out and try and accomplish it in our own strength. Moses cost the children of Israel 30 years extra bondage because of his self-will, because of saying, God, I'm thankful that you revealed to me what I'm supposed to do. I'll do it. Thanks for getting me introduced. I'll take it from here. God, I've got it all worked out. I I know exactly how it's going to work now. Moses tried to accomplish God's will. He wasn't trying to accomplish Satan's will. He wasn't out to try and accomplish his will. He was out trying to do God's will, but he was going to do it in his strength and in his power instead of doing it God's way. Instead of waiting on God's plan, instead of waiting on God's time, he did it in his way. And it cost Moses 40 years in the wilderness, and it cost the children of Israel 30 years added bondage. There's a lot of us, man, that are in the wilderness. You may not know it, but there's a lot of us that are in frustration because God's revealed His will. You've tried to do it, and everything you've done has turned to dirt. And you can't understand what's going on. Why? Where am I? It's because we've been self willed. Maybe you've got a revelation of what God's will is, but that's only half of it. You've not only got to know what God's will is, but you've got to make yourself usable, allow God to make you usable. You've got to shut yourself up with God, and you've got to find God's plan for accomplishing it. You've got to be anointed to accomplish what God calls you to do. Amen? Amen. Well, those are some powerful things. Let's look over here in the fourth chapter, when God finally appeared to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 and chapter 4 in the burning bush. And another thing that we'll have to establish is that the Ten Commandments taught that Moses left the land of Egypt. Uh, out of, you know, he was expelled from there, and he was just trying to get away from God. God, leave me alone for 40 years. And finally, God tracked him down at the end of 40 years. The truth of that is, over in Hebrews chapter 11, and I won't take time to read this, but if you would start reading with about verse 21, Hebrews chapter 11 says, By faith Moses forsook the land of Egypt, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, because he esteemed the riches the reproach of Christ greater than the treasures of Egypt. And it says, by faith he endured throughout this wilderness time as seeing him who is invisible. So the word reveals to us that he was in faith when he was in the wilderness. That means that, and the word endured does not mean just to put up with something, to suffer through it, but it means that he was by faith persevering. He was saying, God, I've blown it but God, still, you're going to use me. He refused to let go of what God called him to do. Even though he blew it, he still believed God was going to use him somehow. Well, that's powerful. You know, there's a lot of us that because we've blown it sometimes, we think God falls off of his throne. Oh, God, you'll never be able to use me again. You know, sometimes blowing it is a prerequisite to being used because that's what it takes for some of us to come down off of our high horse. That's what it takes for some of us to get to a place where we finally realize, God, I can't do it. Moses was self-sufficient. Moses was sure he could do it. Moses had everything going for him. He was skilled in all the wisdom and the knowledge of the Egyptians, mighty in word. He had all the authority. Moses was in the prime of his life. Moses was just confident he could handle anything. But you know what? Moses wound up blowing it, costing the children of Israel 30 years extra bondage, murdered a man trying to accomplish God's will. Can you imagine the guilt that must have come upon him to recognize that that was not God's will and that he just flat snuffed out a life that God made? Moses blew it. But Moses refused to let go. He was finally learning, God, I don't care what I've done or haven't done, it's not going to be me that you use. It's not my ability. It's going to be my response to your ability. It's going to be your power. And for 40 years, Moses, by faith, endured. Moses, in and, my, and th- this again is my own personal interpretation, but I believe Moses was saying, God, give me another chance. God, if you'll give me another chance, I promise you I'll do it your way. I'll do whatever you want me to do. I won't do my thing. Anything. Ask me to do anything, and I'll do it your way. 40 years, I believe that was the cry of Moses. He was saying, God, give me another chance. I'll do anything. Forty years at Bush University, and Exodus chapter 4 is his final exam. It says in verse 1 that Moses answered and said, But behold, they will not believe me. Now Moses is a different person here in chapter 3 and chapter 4 than he was over in chapter 2. In chapter 2, God revealed just a little hint to him of what his will for him was, and Moses went out and killed a man trying to accomplish it. Boy, he was confident he could do anything. Now, when God appeared to Moses, Moses was saying, God, I can't do it. God, they won't listen to me. God, I can't talk. God, they won't believe that you spoke to me. Who am I going to tell them spoke to me? I don't even know your name. He was using every excuse that he could. You know, Moses wasn't the same man that he was 40 years before. 40 years before, Moses was self-sufficient. Now, Moses had reached a place to where he realized he couldn't do anything. Now, that's only part of it, but that's an important part of it. it, is to recognize that in your natural strength and ability, you can't do anything. You've got to realize that before you'll ever be used of God. If you're a self-made, self-sufficient man or woman, you'll never be used of God. You've got to reach a place of humility. You know, some of these things are not real fashionable to talk to faith people about. Now, I know Tim's a good teacher, and I, I feel confident teaching it here because I know Tim but a lot of faith churches, boy, you go in and start preaching things like this and they get on your case because you aren't having a positive self-image. I believe in a positive self-image, but I am positive about myself because of who I am in Christ Jesus. I do not have a positive image of my flesh. I do not have a positive image of my natural ability and power. I believe that through Christ I can do all things, but I don't believe that I can do all things by myself. I believe that through Christ I can. And you you separate a person from Christ and you try and take those positive principles and instill them in businessmen and salespeople in the world and you come up with a bunch of jerks, prideful jerks, amen, and they may be seeing prosperity and they may be selling more than anybody else, but they are egotists, and their homes are uh, split up and they're having terrible problems. I guarantee you, you need to have a knowledge that in your natural self, you can't do anything. Like Paul said in Romans chapter 7, I know that in me that is in my flesh. He qualified it knowing that there was a part of him that was different, but in my flesh there is no good thing. And there's a lot of Spirit-filled people today that don't believe that. They believe me and they they got it together in the flesh and in the Spirit and in the soul and all of you. I guarantee you God didn't come and redeem you because you were the greatest crowning jewel in the universe.
1: <laughs> he
0: did it just because he loved you. And boy, there's freedom in that. You don't have to perform. You know, the devil comes to me and he he says, you sorry thing, what makes you think God will use you? You haven't done enough of this. You had not prayed enough. You had not studied enough. You didn't fast enough. You hadn't been good enough. You know, used to. He would condemn me with things like that and I'd get in and say, now I'm doing better than I was and I'd start trying to justify myself. And every time I'd start like that, he'd get me. Because it didn't matter how good I'd been, I still wasn't perfect. And you know, I found a real place of release now. That when the Lord comes, I mean, when the devil comes to me and he goes to condemning me, instead of trying to justify myself, I just say guilty. Praise God for Jesus. I'll tell him about who Jesus is. Amen. <laughs> I'll pray over the people in the name of Jesus, and I'll do it through who Christ in me. And I I don't look to myself anymore. There's freedom in that. There's a release in that. Amen. Well, if I had to blow it bad yesterday, I could come up here and preach with all authority and boldness, not because of who I am, but because of who I'm preaching about, who it is that Hallelujah. I'm speaking of. I can tell you about him. I don't have to tell you about my holiness and my righteousness. Amen. There's a freedom in that. I used to think God was going to use me according to my goodness, and that's just not so. God never had anybody qualified working for him yet.
1: <laughs>
0: Amen. <laughs> Praise God. So Moses recognized he wasn't qualified, and he was saying, But behold, they will not believe me, nor hearken unto my voice, for they will say, The Lord hath not appeared unto thee. And the Lord said unto him, What is that in thine hand? And he said, A rod. And he said, Cast it on the ground. And he cast it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses fled from before it. Now, some people aren't bothered by snakes. I was with a guy one time, and I was in his pickup, and I heard this noise, and I was looking around, and I looked under the seat, and there was a rattlesnake under the seat wagging his tail, and man, I jumped up in the seat real quick, and he knew it was there. He kept rattlesnakes under his seat in case anybody ever gave him a hard time. He handled snakes. No problem to him. Boy, it was a problem to me, but it's no problem to him. (laughs) Some people are just weird, and they don't mind handling snakes, but Moses wasn't one of those this says that moses fled from before now you got to get the picture of this moses for 40 years had been seeking god what it says in hebrews chapter 11 by faith he was enduring moses was seeking god oh god give me another chance god finally appears to moses in a visible form speaks to him in an audible voice moses took his shoes from off of his feet and he didn't have any precedent for that you know we do that thinking about well i'm on holy ground we think about what moses did and all these others but nobody had ever done that when moses did it I mean, Moses was in the presence of God, seeking him for 40 years, apparently no real word from God or anything. The thing he had been crying after for 40 years, he was willing to chunk it all, amen, to get out away from that snake. Moses was bothered by that snake. And then God called to him and he says, Moses, put forth thy hand and take it by the tail. Now, even if you are the kind of person that handles a snake, which Moses wasn't, right. but even if you do handle snakes, you don't pick it up by the tail. If you pick it up by the tail, that means that snake can turn any way he wants to, he can bite you. You have to grab it right behind the head so that if it, as its body flips around, it can't bite you. If you grab it by the tail, that means that you aren't in control, but you are totally at the mercy of that snake. You know, Moses didn't have the benefit of knowing the last part of verse 4 either. <laughs> Moses hadn't written Exodus 4, 4 yet. (laughs) And Moses didn't know what was going to happen when he put forth that snake. I mean, put forth his hand to take that snake. There's more to this than what meets the eye. What this actually was, was Moses' final exam. Forty years, God had been teaching him, Moses, you can't, but I can. Moses had been saying, God, give me another chance. I'll do anything. I'll do anything. I'll do it your way. And here's God saying, all right, Moses, we'll see if you've learned yet. He says, pick up this snake by the tail. And you know, Moses picked it up by the tail. And I don't believe that Moses knew it was going to turn back into a rod. I believe in Moses' way of thinking, it was death. I mean, that was the normal way of thinking. But yet, he had made this commitment. He had learned his lesson and he'd been saying, God, I'll do anything I'll do anything. I'll do it your way, regardless of how foolish to the natural it seems. I'll do whatever you want. And did you know Moses proved that that was truly the heart cry that he had when he reached forth his hand and took that snake by the tail? I don't believe Moses expected to live. I don't know what he expected, but I don't believe he expected it to turn back into a rod. But see, God was proving him. God was giving him this final exam and he he passed the test. And then is when God used him. Is when he was willing to do it God's way, even to the point of death. You know, many of us want to be used of God. But how many of us are willing to do it, even if it kills us? How many of us, if God told us to pick a snake up by the tail? How many of us have learned submission to the point that we would lay our life down and let what we have been believing for for 40 years? God, what about my ministry? God, what about these Jews? I'm still believing that you're going to use me to bring these Jews out of bondage. How many of us would chunk the whole thing to say, God, if you want me to die right now, I'll do it. I'll lay my ministry down. You know, this is a real problem with ministers. I minister a lot to ministers, and I've seen a lot of ministers that get so caught up in their ministry that if that ministry didn't prosper, they'd just as soon die. They've gotten things out of priority. That ministry consumes them and directs their activities more than God does. You know, I can truthfully say this with with my conscience bearing me witness that if God told me today to walk away from this ministry to never minister the Word again, I'd be gone tomorrow, and I'd enjoy it. I could go back to pouring cement, leading the cement truck drivers to the Lord the way we did. We saw at least one person born again every day when I was pouring cement. I could go back to doing that and love it. I could walk away from the ministry today. Some people have a hard time with that. But, you know, I believe that puts me in a stronger position of ministry because this ministry is not the ultimate to me. Serving God is the ultimate, and if God told me today that you fulfilled your usefulness, turn in your tag, amen, and go do something else. I could do it. I believe that's part of submission. I believe that's part of what God calls us to do. If God was to tell you to go start cleaning toilets instead of having your ministry, there's a lot of people that couldn't yield to that. You know, that could be your snake that you have to pick up. (laughs) A lot of people are wanting to preach. Well, you know, there's street corners all over town. There's a lot of bars. Man, bars are good places to preach. Rescue missions and nursing homes. That's where I got started, rescue missions and nursing homes. If I preached in a nursing home every week for two years. I hit four county jails every week for two and a half years. Started in the rescue missions. And I was content to do that until the Lord came. There's a lot of people that are wanting the recognition. They aren't really wanting to minister. They aren't wanting to see people's lives change. They're just wanting their own recognition. They're using the ministry. They're using being used of God as a way of satisfying the flesh. And that's the reason that God hasn't anointed them. That's the reason God hasn't opened up any doors. If you're having to pray to get the doors open, it's because you aren't usable. Man, you make yourself available. You learn the lesson and say, God, I'll do anything. And you prove yourself useful And I guarantee you, God will use you. No questions about it. Moses yielded himself even unto the point of death. And as a result, God took him and used him. David is, boy, I tell you, I've got all of the great men of God. I could spend hours upon hours doing that, and I won't won't do that this morning. But I tell you, you could draw the same principles out of Joseph's life, out of Jacob's life, out of David's life, and right on down the line, Daniel learned the same lesson. The same things that we're talking about are consistent values in any person who is used of God. Did you know David was anointed to be king? And rather than do anything out of his ability to bring that being king around to himself, He he totally did the opposite. He waited on God and let God be the one that promoted him. Even twice when Saul was delivered into his hands, one time Saul was out trying to kill him and Saul came and laid down in a cave where David was hiding to go to sleep and take a nap. David went out and cut the skirt of his robe off and then went out and talked to Saul, but he refused to do anything to make that kingdom come to himself. Did you know God blessed him for that? And even after David gained control, now this is another lesson that you learn from David. Some people start out that way, they start out pure. But once they start seeing success, then they get corrupted by it. And they may have let God be the one that totally promoted them, but boy, once they get in a position of power, they use that power and position to defend themselves and to crush any type of opposition or thing that would come against them. David didn't get to that position on his own, and he didn't keep it by his own power either. Because Absalom, and if you, I haven't got time to go through this, but if you would study it out, Absalom for four and a half years was stealing away the hearts of the children of Israel and telling them, David's not a just king. If you would make me king, I would t- handle your matters justly. David knew what was going on. David didn't have his head in the barrel. He knew what Absalom was doing. He never did one thing to refuse to restrain Absalom at all. And then when Absalom finally anointed himself king and came to kill his father, King David, David fled from the city and the priests brought the ark and they started to bring the ark with him, which was a symbol of the presence of God. And David said, No. He says, You take the ark back into Jerusalem? And he says, If God is pleased to bring me back, then I'll come back to the ark. And if God is not pleased, if God's through with me, then let God do to me what he wants. Man, that's strong. David was saying, if my usefulness is over, it's fine. I can die at the hands of Absalom. David was saying, God, whatever you want with me, even after 40 years reigning as king, having absolute control, it had not corrupted that basic value in David, and that was that God was the one that promoted him, God was the one that defended him, God was the one that was going to keep him there. He refused to do it through his natural ability. I dare to say probably 99 to 100 percent of us put in the same situation would have used our power to make Absalom advocate his throne. But that wasn't the way David was. David was a man after God's own heart. Jesus never defended himself, and he could have called on the powers of God, but he didn't defend himself. He let God defend him. Joseph went for 13 years without seeing the prophecies that God had given him, those dreams, come to pass. But he was faithful. You know, Joseph is one of the few people that never made a mistake recorded in the Word of God, never rebuked of God in any way, form, or fashion. He remained faithful. He finally became the number two person over the entire land of Egypt. He had control of all of the armies. The Bible says that no man could lift up his hand or his foot without Joseph's approval. Pharaoh gave him total authority over the land of Egypt. He came into that position when he was 30 years old, and he ruled through the seven years of the prosperous years and two of the years of famine before his brothers came up to him and he revealed himself to them. For nine years, Joseph could have gone down, surrounded Jacob and all of his brethren, had the armies of Egypt there, and have made them bow the knee, and have made that dream that God gave him when he was 17 years old come to pass. For 13 years, I'm sure he was hanging on by faith. To God, I still believe what you showed me is true. But when he had total power, he could have done anything he wanted to make that come to pass. He still never did one thing to bring that vision of God's will to pass. He let God bring it to pass in his time and in his way. For nine years, Joseph sat there and never one time used any of his authority of power to make it come to pass. Well, that blows me away. That's a powerful, powerful man of God that is so submitted to God that he'll allow something to drag on for nine years that he could have changed. Boy, there's a lot of us that won't wait ten minutes on God if we could do it ourselves. And then we wonder why we aren't being used of God. I tell you, God is out to find some people that are totally divested of self to the place where they're saying, God, I'll do it your way, your will, to be totally yielded to God. And I'm not talking about a passive person. Boy, I tell you, that's, I'm not talking about just doing nothing. Boy, it's hard to seek God that way, to make yourself available. That'll take 100% of all of your energies. But brothers and sisters, it's not God that isn't willing to change Pueblo. It's not God that's not willing to pack out this building. And God would want, God would want every person in Pueblo hearing the Word of God this morning. It's not God that we're having to intercede with and get motivated. It's just the simple fact that God uses people and God doesn't have any usable people. Those of us that are being used are being used to a very small degree compared to what God wants to use us. And so it's not a matter of grabbing hold of God. It's a matter of letting God grab hold of us. It's a matter of us yielding ourselves and presenting ourselves to God. And the Bible says that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, seeking to show himself strong in behalf of those who are perfect in his sight. I believe that God, the eyes of God are here this morning. I believe that God directed me in what I ministered. I believe that God is here to seek out some people that he'd use. You know, Dwight L. Moody was sitting in the back of a church one night, and a man stood up, and he said, the world has never yet seen what God can do with one person who is totally yielded to him. And Dwight L. Moody left that place, and he said, by the grace of God, I'll be that man. And Dwight L. Moody failed. He wasn't 100% yielded to God, but that man without a third-grade education, he was denied membership in the church because they didn't believe he showed enough fruit of being a Christian. He had nothing going for him, and yet that man transformed three continents, shook them to their foundation, preached before kings and queens, had hundreds of thousands of people there and saw, I don't know, probably millions of people born again had nothing going for him except that he made himself that person who was yielded to God. And God's here looking for a few good men, just like the
1: Marines.
0: (laughs) God's not looking for abilities. He's not looking for people that have got it all together. All he's wanting is a surrendered vessel, not a silver one. If he'll get a surrendered vessel, I guarantee you he'll make you into something that will glorify himself. And all of the praise and the glory will go to God, not to you. It will be God. People will know that it's the anointing of God on your life, not you and not your natural ability and power. But what it takes is for you to yield yourself, to lay down your life, to lose your life in God so that you can really find God's life. And brothers and sisters, I sad to say that most of us have never made that commitment. Even most Spirit-filled people, tongue-talkers, word people, are still doing their own thing. And God's calling you into account and asking you to yield yourself, make yourself usable. And if you'll do it, it may take some time, but I promise you, God will work a miracle in you. God's got a perfect plan for every one of your lives. God intended for you to be the most supernatural thing that ever walked on the face of the earth. He says, the works that Jesus did shall you do also, and even greater works than these shall he do. That's not just words, that's reality. God wants you to see the dead raised. God wants you to see the blind eyes open. He wants you to preach the gospel to the poor, to see the people that are cast down and the prisoners set free. God wants to use you for that. God's got a perfect plan for your life. But it comes through losing your life, through laying it down, through submitting it to God, making yourself totally available to God. That's the first step. Amen? Y'all ready to do that? Praise God. Let's stand up and pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. We praise you for it. And, Father, according to 2 Corinthians 10, all of these things in the Old Testament were written for our admonition and for our instruction so that we could profit and benefit, that we would not have to go through the same problems. Father, I ask you that the Holy Spirit just take the words said today and that, Father, you'll open up our hearts and let us see Father, areas of our lives where we have not yielded ourselves to you, where we've been self-willed, where we are hindering the will of God from coming to pass. And Father, we make ourselves available to you this morning. Father, I ask you that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you help people to make that commitment, to make themselves that living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto you. And Father, I praise you for it. We bless you, Lord Jesus. I just depend on the fact that the Holy Spirit is drawing people to that place of commitment, total commitment unto you. And Father, we receive that this morning. Praise you, Father. You know, I want to ask you, the Bible says that God confirms his word with signs and wonders following, and I believe that that's very um, directional. If I'm ministering on commitment, God will confirm the word of commitment by bringing people to commitment. And I believe that there's an anointing on his word today, that there's some of you that may have never really been confronted with this. You may have committed your life to him as far as forgiveness of sins go, as far as trusting him in minor details, but I'm sure there are people in here that have never really committed yourself lock, stock, and barrel to God, to the point of like Moses that you would take a serpent of that you'll do anything, God, I'll do anything. Total commitment, total sacrifice. And I believe that God's confronted some people with that today and that he's bringing you to that place of commitment. It's short notice to make a decision like that, but at the same time, there's an anointing of God present that'll quicken you, that'll help you to make that commitment. And I want to give you an opportunity to commit to that. I want to preface this by saying that there's some of you that I know have made this commitment and maybe you've fallen short of it. Today has been an admonition to you. You do not have to recommit. Just get back on target. Do what you told God you do. Thank him for the admonition, for the correction. But there's some of you that have never really dealt with this and you have never really openly professed that God, I'm yours totally and completely. And it's important that you do it openly. Again, it's that matter of pride. Pride, self-centeredness is what has kept you from making it. And if you're too self-centered, if you're too concerned with what people think about you to make an open profession, well, then that pride is still too active in you. There's something about humbling yourself in front of people and admitting, I've been wrong. So I believe it's important for you to do it openly. I'd like to ask you, if today is your first day, or the first time it's ever really hit you this way, and you are ready to commit yourself to God as a living sacrifice and say, God, I'm not capable of doing it on my own, but I make the choice. I decide. And I ask you from this moment on to just consume me as a sacrifice. I want to be totally yielded to you. God, take out the selfishness. God, take out the self-willed. And if you're to that place, And if you're ready to make that commitment, I'd like for you to raise your hand where you are, and we're going to pray a prayer of commitment over that.